Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. My guest today is Mercedes Bent, who's a partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners and is on their consumer investing team. Lightspeed Venture Partners' mission is to serve the world's most extraordinary people who are building tomorrow's companies today. Some of her portfolio includes Forage, StoryCard, OutSchool, and FlockJoy, among other amazing companies. Mercedes is primarily focused on investing in edtech, future of work, fintech, and consumer products. We talk about how consumer businesses are building new models that involve ownership for consumers, parts of edtech where there is opportunity, and how she thinks about optimism. Without further ado, here's Mercedes. Mercedes, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm I'm good as can be given the last week, but soon we're all in the same boat. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. It's been a been a crazy week, and obviously last year was a really crazy year too. So I would love to start at the beginning of your career. You know, what was your initial attraction to technology and consumer facing businesses? I first, it's a funny story because I grew up in a family that was very entrepreneurial. My parents had both started companies. My dad was an engineer. My mom was an accountant. And I thought that, you know, the family conversation every night around the dinner table discussing ideas and businesses we would start was totally normal. And we would talk about how technology was evolving and new, you know, improvements that were coming out. And so for me, you know, it's, it's been kind of my whole life since a young girl sitting around the family table, there's five of us, I've got two siblings and we would just talk ideas, ideas, ideas. And I remember my dad saying, you know, I had the idea for the Furby and he, he was talking about it like three years before what it became the Furby came out. And so we were always just talking about, you know, ideas like that. That's awesome. That's super cool. It reminds me, I was talking with a, a Katie Shea, who's an investor out in New York, and she kind of said, had similar things. Her parents were, were entrepreneurs and so were on the dinner table as well. That was the conversation. It's kind of all that she ever knew in terms of just to talk about with the family. So um, yeah, I mean, I didn't hear about what venture capital was or investment banking or really lawyers or doctors until very late. I mean, I maybe heard about lawyers and doctors in high school, heard about investment banking, consulting and venture capital, maybe for the first time sometime in college. So it was, yeah, a very different experience. So what would you say then, what I guess lured you to technology or have an interest in technology? I always thought that technology had the power to really change people's lives, to speed up inefficient processes, to give them access to information. I mean, I, I in many ways, I'm kind of the classic, you know, entrepreneur optimist around the power of technology. I think more recently, I've also started to think a lot more about the downside of technology and how we protect ourselves from it. But I first got, you know, interested in it because of that power. I remember in high school, my dad was teaching me to do some coding and I am not an engineer today by any stretch of the imagination, but I started creating websites and realizing that you could post things, you could put your your ideas out there and people would see them and, and respond to them. I took a, a computer science class in college as well. That's where I figured out I was not going to be an engineer, but you know, the power of technology was all around us and I just wanted to start creating 
creating and, and making things. Totally. And I really like how you frame that in terms of understanding the upside or opportunity that technology gives us as well as, and I think of the most recent events, we've certainly seen this in terms of the downside sometimes of technology as well. There's always trade-offs, but I do think that the pros and, and everything that that's happened, I mean, you know, given especially since the coronavirus and now we're able to still work remotely, those that are able to work remotely, there's still a lot of benefit, obviously, with technology. Talk to me about, you know, as you were an operator, you know, one of your experiences that come to mind, you worked for a long time at General Assembly and would just love to kind of hear a bit more about that experience and how that helped shape you. So General Assembly, I worked there from 2012 to almost the end of 2016. And when I first joined there, my thought was I was coming out of corporate finance. I had worked at Goldman and the Federal Reserve for a couple of years prior. And I thought, you know, hey, I, I really want to be a product manager. I want to go work at a tech company, but let me go join General Assembly. It sounds like this really cool startup in New York City. It was the center of the New York City tech scene for a while. And let me, you know, take their classes. I'll get to learn a bit about UX design, and product management and data science and web development. And I'll treat it like, you know, tech business school for a year. And then I'll leave and go join a real tech company. And I really quickly realized, was it going to happen? I fell in love with the mission of helping people transform their lives, helping people go from, you know, that we had all sorts of stories of people who were working in, you know, Dean and DeLuca as a cashier, a grocery store working as a cashier, and then going on to become a computer scientist, a software engineer, making $120,000 a year. And so that transformational story was really what made me fall in love with the power of not just technology, but the combination of technology plus education to change people's lives. And that's when I really fell in love with ed tech. I had a history of, um, you know, really loving education from my family background as well. My grandparents are HBCU professors. My mom was a community college professor, but this was the first time I got to see that intersection of education and technology come together. I love that. I love that. That's amazing. Because you hear about those stories, but when you're in that operator role and you're able to see that actually maybe on a daily basis, that's, I think, incredibly empowering and very inspiring. So what made you kind of, you know, flip to the other side of the table, so to speak, or become an investor and your attraction to venture capital? There's a couple of things. I first started thinking about or really getting exposed to the idea of venture capital while I was at General Assembly. I was very fortunate to work with our CEO, Jake Schwartz, who had created a role for me where I was head of new ventures. I was working on new projects at the firm related to how we could expand either products or geographies or different business lines. And he said, hey, Mercedes, you know, you're going to be the, treat yourself kind of like the entrepreneur and I'll be the VC. You know, think of it that way. How much capital do you need? What's the cost of capital in order to create this new business and what's the return going to be on it. And so that was the first time anyone had actually, you know, practiced or, or put the investor mindset in front of me and walked through it. And so I was like, huh, okay, this is kind of interesting way to think about it versus before I just thought of ideas, you just start them and you it's all about the product and you just focus on that. I didn't really think about the financial side. And so that was one experience. And then the second was, you know, as I went on, I, I also worked at another startup after General Assembly and all around, I, I worked in San Francisco, Los Angeles and New York City and startup communities at a couple of different startups. And I kept realizing that I wasn't seeing people who looked like me start companies. We were, there's very, very few women in underrepresented groups that are starting companies and getting funded. And so I decided I wanted to change that. And I thought about how could I change it? Okay, I can become a founder and help be part of that story. Or I can also join the other side and be a venture capitalist and start funding folks like that. So when the opportunity came up a couple of years later to look at venture, I knew I had to give it a chance. 
That's amazing. And that's, I guess it goes back as well, just empowering people, even from your experience at General Assembly. That's amazing. You know, and diversity in venture capital and also funding founders is something that we certainly talk about here on this show in terms of how we can increase diversity. I'd say, tell us a little bit about Lightspeed. You know, we had on uh, Nicole Quinn, I think October 2019, so some time ago. So for folks that aren't familiar, just tell us a little bit about Lightspeed as well and maybe some of your focus areas. Sure. Yeah. Lightspeed's a pretty big venture capital firm. We're based out of the Bay Area. We've got offices in India, China, Southeast Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. And we got started right before the first dot-com boom or bubble. So we've kind of seen a couple of different you know, recession points. And I think that over the 20-year history, what we really have tried to do is partner with founders at the earliest stages and now later on at the growth stages as well and be the capital partner who can stay with them until you know their series D, E, F, the whole alphabet soup and, and really work with them for a long time. We invest in all sorts of sectors in biotech, fintech, consumer, enterprise, infrastructure. I invest in ed tech. So it's really quite a varied spectrum. And we're doing check sizes starting on the low end around 3 million and going up, you know, 100, 100 or above there. Got it. So you, is that typically start around like the Series A space? Yeah, exactly. Series A is my favorite place. Nice. nice. How do you think about you know, the Series A landscape? Because I had on about a year ago, Mike Gaffari at a Canvas. And what he was saying was that, you know, a lot of venture funds, and again, this is a year ago, a lot can change in a year. So I'm curious what you think, but there's a lot of venture funds that are playing very, very early in the pre-seed and seed stages and want to be the first check-in. There's a lot of funds that are going very, very late. And the Series A seems to be tight where there's actually not not as much competition. Is that your sense or not so much? I feel like there's a lot of competition at the Series A, but maybe that's it. You know, for the best deals, there's always a ton of competition. I love the Series A stage because it's at that space right after startups have found product market fit, and now it's about all about scaling it up and becoming really large. And that's when they first have to encounter a lot of the operational complexities of running a startup. And of all, I worked at several Series A startups, and that was the place where I personally, as an operator, thrived was figuring out how do we turn this product idea that's working and to process and optimize things and systems that will make it so that we can really grow and reach as many people as possible. But on you know competitiveness, I actually think the Series A round is also one of the more difficult rounds for, I believe, founders of color to get past. It's the first round where it's often really institutional and investors, there are several institutional, of course, seed funds, but you can get by with angel investment and some smaller seed checks until you know a Series A stage. And it's the first stage where it's all about the metrics. Okay, tell me about your cohorts. Tell me about your engagement. And I think that's also where there's a lot of lingo of Silicon Valley and VC that comes into the fundraise process. So how, in terms of increasing diversity with the amount of founders that are able to raise the Series A, what are your thoughts around trying to get founders that there's been underrepresented founders that have been able to fundraise? And I'm speaking generally here, but at the pre-seed and seed stages, but the Series A is maybe that, maybe turning point where you might see a big drop-off, unfortunately. Still, the numbers across the board are terrible. I'm not trying to say that at the seed and pre-seed, it's any good. The percentages are still horrendous and certainly there needs to be change. But what are your thoughts around maybe some of the change that maybe needs to happen at the Series A? 
I think in the Series A, there needs to be one, a lot less reliance on warm introductions, just getting you know introduced from your buddy. I think a lot of the access to getting in front of VCs of the Series A, unless your metrics are the you know so outstanding on their own, and even then it's tough because just not everyone responds to cold emails. I respond to a lot of cold emails, but it's that's not always happening. I think the other thing at the Series A is once again about that lingo, the language of Silicon Valley, and how to get code founders to really understand what the questions that VCs of the Series A are asking and what the expected answer is. There's a lot of accelerator programs that work at the earliest stages, pre-seed, angel stage accelerators. But I actually think when I've seen founders a little go through some of the accelerators a little bit later around you know a late seed time frame that those ones can really prepare them well for this is what the Series A raise is going to look like. So I think there needs to be a lot more of that support as well. Does signaling also have anything to do with it as well? I'm just kind of thinking out loud here or not so much. You mean signaling in terms of who were your prior investors? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I think that that certainly can be the case. I mean, one of the things I don't love about Silicon Valley and venture investing is that the hottest deals are the deals that everyone else wants to get in on. And there's kind of this rumor mill of signaling of, well, who else was talking to them and who else was, you know, in, interested in in the round. And often that is predicated on how many people did the founder know at the top firms to start with, because you can set up 10 meetings and then start to get the flywheel going of saying, hey, I was talking to this top firm, this top firm, that top firm. And I wish that wasn't necessarily the case, but I do think that signaling is important there. Yeah, I'm just curious and something I haven't really thought about. But, you know, if you raise, for example, from a fund that maybe not be maybe considered, so to speak, you know, a top firm, what that actually does to your moving forward in terms of your chances of getting fundraised through. We talk about the show in terms of signaling as it pertains to uh, pro rata, but we haven't talked as much in terms of, you know, what it actually could mean if you actually raise from, you know, a fund that might be just not be as well known at the seed stage and maybe your prospects then at the Series A. Certainly. So I know that one of your focuses is, as you alluded to, ed tech. I'd love to know what are some of the trends or opportunities that you're finding since this is a very interesting period for ed tech. Ed tech is undergoing one of the most radical transformations right now. And it, as much as it's sad to see what is the cause uh, that's changing this, it's amazing to see how the whole industry has really accelerated five, 10 years into the future in terms of the getting students online, getting schools online and remote learning and virtual learning becoming a possibility and more decentralized learning as well. People are starting to not only learn, you know, our public school system is amazing. I went to public schools all of my life, K through 12. And the unfortunate thing is that they're not always necessarily able to serve every single student in the exact way that every single student would like to be served. And so we've seen some innovations in the system over time, you know, the charter school system, um, private schools. And those are a couple of percentage points in terms of the total population, homeschooling. But now we're really starting to see a growth in another set of schools, which is micro schools. And so one of the trends I've been paying attention to in ed tech this year is, you know, it was called learning pods last year, and they just exploded overnight. Some of the stats said that, you know, as many as 40% of parents had disenrolled their child from their prior school into the next school that they went into. And I think that the that just shows that parents are looking 
looking for more schooling choices. And so while I actually think it, this doesn't mean the end of the public school system at all, I think there's a lot of really interesting opportunities for public school systems to partner with other institutions to offer virtual learning options. I saw another stat today that said something like 70% of administrators at public schools are in favor of or starting to launch their own virtual schooling options in addition to the in-person options. So I think that's one big trend I'm paying attention to is the you know decentralization and proliferation of schooling options for K through 12 students. Another big trend that I'm looking at this year in 2021 is what I call kind of social learning or community learning. I think I've met a lot of founders thinking about this lately and what they're they're kind of saying to me, you know, and we're, we're mostly talking about adult learning here, but what they're saying is if you think about the last decade of really big adult learning solutions, Masterclass, Udemy, Udacity, Coursera, folks like that, they're really popular and great either one-to-many tools or kind of single-player tools. There isn't necessarily that you know, feeling of, hey, I can match up with somebody who is taking the same class in Coursera or Udemy and we can talk and discuss together or, you know, think of it almost as like a layer on top of Netflix documentaries that people would want to discuss and and learn and, you know, the things that they're learning. So I think this is a really big trend we'll see come to play in 2021 because I know there's a lot of founders thinking about it, but how do we have that greater connectedness? Everyone knows that one of the best ways to cement your own learning is to teach it to someone else or discuss it with someone else. And so I think that's going to become a much bigger trend in 2021 as well. And maybe the third one, I'll just give one last one in terms of uh, biggest you know, ed tech trends I'm looking for. The third is a continuation of something we saw last year, which was the verticalization of software for the education industry. And specifically thinking about, you know, education already had learning management systems, and those are very popular, Canvas, Moodle, Blackboard. But what about you know, live learning features. Zoom, for example, we're all using Zoom right these days. It didn't historically, and they're starting to roll out a few features, but have an education-specific software use case in terms of features and design. But yet, you know, that's their biggest vertical. There's 125,000 schools using Zoom. And so there's starting to be companies like Class EDU that partners with Zoom, Engagely, CampusWire, or, or a couple of others that are looking to create live learning software for the education industry. So I think we'll see a lot more of that. Cool. So I was just also taking notes here because I think that this, all of this is really fascinating. To break it down, the first one, I guess it more of like transforming or rethinking about the formalized education with like personalized schools and this collaboration of the in-classroom and then also using online tools for that. And then the second one in terms of like community learning, like, yeah, I mean, that's super fascinating with um, adult learning. It seems like almost like a learning has become cool again, just from everyone post online, which is super, super compelling and fantastic and that social element as well to learning and then also looking at like the software tools on like and i appreciate that you brought up zoom at one of our upstream events i was chatting with uh, jim shineman from maven ventures and when i asked him what's one of the big opportunities he sees he's like i think zoom as a marketplace and you know software products building on top of zoom there's a huge market for it because with video and just like we're doing right now there's so much opportunity in that space as well and i certainly can see it in education so mercedes 
What are some of your investments in ed tech and what makes you excited about these companies? We at Lightspeed actually have quite a number of ed tech companies in our portfolio, about eight or nine or so. On the K through 12 side, we're investors in Clever, OutSchool, and Byju's. And those companies are, are really exciting because they're helping young learners unlock a more personalized learning experience. OutSchool, as we talked about, it's a live online marketplace for K through 12 learners. Byju's is an app that is actually at one point last year was the most valuable education company in the entire world, recently eclipsed, but still very, very valuable based out of India that is really focused on helping learners understand all sorts of academic concepts. And Clever, the single sign-on company for K-12 schools that helps schools administer a much better learning experience. So we've had some investments on that K-12 side. And then also on the higher education or more career mobility adult learning side, our investors in Handshake, which is the college recruitment platform, White Hat, which is a apprenticeship network, Forage, the career discovery platform, and FockJ, a sales training bootcamp. We also are investors in a couple of other corporate training companies, BetterUp, Terminal, and Eightfold. Um, and those help, like BetterUp help is, helps coach employees at, at companies. I think the career mobility companies, given my time at General Assembly, are very near and dear to my heart because I think that that's one of the biggest places we have for econ- opportunities we have for economic mobility. When you think about how to transform someone's life, it's give them a new job, give them new wage and earning potential. And that's really what Handshake, White Hat, Flock J, and Forage are all really doing all in their own kind of unique ways. That's awesome. That sounds terrific. Really cool. And yeah, I really appreciate that. So when we first chatted, I know that you said, you know, the expression is like, you know, the future of consumer is fintech. And I'd love to, you know, maybe break down how are you thinking about because you kind of have an interesting angle or maybe like thesis around this, but how do you think about different consumer technology relating to the fintech world? Yeah, there's a couple of areas in fintech that I really love that are focused on the consumer. One is the retail investing space. I just published a blog post about this a couple of days ago, but we obviously have seen with Robinhood how they have grown and become really almost a household name that we're kind of in this retail investing zeitgeist moment right now where everyone wants to trade, everyone wants to express their idea of how the future is going to play out through the equities and stock market. So I can come back to that, but that's one area of fintech I'm really interested in. A second area is peer-to-peer lending and credit. I think that that's what an area where there's a lot of opportunity to help others out. I mean, we are in a, the middle of still a crisis that's not quite reflected in the stock market, but it's certainly being felt in people's day-to-day lives in terms of people not going to work. And how do we have more? How do they have more access? to credit that they can pay back and good underwriting. And so I think that's a a sector that has all sorts of interesting ways that it can be delivered. It can be delivered as kind of bill me later versus, you know, pay all at once at checkout. It can be, you know, credit cards. It can be peer-to-peer credit. There's really interesting stuff going on there. And then the third area, which relates to the second, is neobanks. We've all seen how Chime has grown really large, how there's neobanks all over the world, new bank, you know, M1, Revolut growing really fast. And I think that there is increasingly a, a feeling of, you know, consumers expect more from their banks. And why are we getting these fees? I mean, I still have my accounts with all sorts of traditional banks and I'm always tired of getting, you know, fees. My, my balance is always going too low in one of my Bank of America accounts. And I get charged these fees all the time. And I'm like, this is just not, this is not what consumers want. So there's a lot going on in fintech that is really exciting for consumers right now. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, especially on the fees for my business account, whenever that gets too low and I haven't gotten a payment 
in a while. Yeah. Having those fees, it's really, really frustrating. So I totally agree in terms of the future in, in, in many uh, fintech products. And then how do you think about how investment products are evolving? So this past year has been one of the craziest years in the stock market. I mean, we saw the Robin Hood effect where millennials got really into trading, many of them doing day trading. We know that day trading tends to lose money, unfortunately, but it really took over. And there was kind of this retail investing zeitgeist moment where everyone you talked about, it was your Uber driver, was the person you were getting lunch from, was was telling you about a stock that they were investing in. Or, you know, we saw Tesla go up super high. We saw all sorts of, of companies really grow. And I think what started is starting to happen now, you know, some people have said to me, okay, well, that company's huge, is retail investing over? And I think the answer is absolutely not. I think we're just getting started with the new generation of investing products. I say this because if we look at the data, you know, millennials today in 2020, well, last year in 2020, only held about 3% of all equity that was available. Older generations hold much greater percentages of the equity and wealth. And and as of 2019, there was only about 40 to 50% of millennials that had owned any stock ever. And so while there was a big run up in 2020, I still think there's a lot of wallet share and a lot of new investors to be one in the millennial and eventually Gen Z generations. And so investment products are having to think a lot more about that Robinhood effect where Robinhood made it friction-free, mobile-first, fractional investments. And they're starting to go beyond that. They're starting to say, well, actually now we need to connect with millennials and Gen Z where they're at. Their expectations are all about feeling much more connected to their brands and feeling much more informed about what they're doing. So I think apps that are investing in their educational features that are investing in their community feature features. What are my friends trading? How do I work as a team to trade with them that are investing much more in membership features? What do I get as a result of being a stock owner? You know, there are a couple of companies that do perks, but it's it's not very clear. And I think there's a lot of, I mean, I've met so many startups going after the space to make it more compelling for millennial and Gen Z users. And then the other thing I would say on that too, is that the really other interesting effect of this investment mindset that is growing so fast amongst millennials is that millennials are also saying, hey, we're interested in the stock market. We want to invest there. But we also want to invest in products that we know a little bit better in companies where we feel more connected to the brand. And so we're starting to see companies like Rally Road and Otis and VinoVest start to allow millennials to invest in everything from fine wine to trading cards to streetwear to sneakers. And so it's this this opportunity that I think a lot of commerce companies in the future will be able to create almost like an investment asset class within their consumer and e-commerce brand. And millennials will want to to buy into that, to be an owner of that special edition product. So there's so many things ahead that I'm really excited for in investing. It's awesome. I mean, it reminds me on your last point, it reminds me of, you know, what they say in investing is invest in what you know. And when I think about that, I think of, you know, okay, if you know art, why not invest in art or shoes or, you know, these other categories that millennials might know really well, not to pick on millennials. But I mean, it's interesting because it's not just, you know, stocks, even though they're still interested in stocks, but that's just fascinating. I think that it kind of comes back down to that as well. So that's really cool. Walk us through a little bit about your due diligence process and the diligence process at the Series A, if you wouldn't mind. 
Sure. So my due diligence process at the Series A, there's a couple of different things that we go after or that we look at. Obviously, team is always super important. So I'll come back to team a little in a little bit. The, the lot of Series A, as I was talking about earlier, is really around the metrics. And when we think about you know a company that is doing well, obviously, we want to see fast growth. That's one of the first indicators or the growing three to four X year over year. But on top of that, we also really want to know that the their consumers or their users love the product, whether it's the enterprise product or a consumer product, but especially for consumer products, we want to see really high engagement and really strong retention. And the third thing we also really like to see is a really strong set, a way to acquire users at a really low customer cost of acquisition. If you have those three things, low CAC, really high retention and really strong engagement, you're going to be an amazing company. And so we kind of have our thresholds that we look for, for all of them. But what those things, when you tend to see all of them working in concert together for consumer companies, we really know that they're starting to often also tap into a piece of pop culture. And we're constantly looking for consumer companies that have such high organic, that have such strong retention, word of mouth, people are telling their friends about it. And that's why they're becoming really large. We saw this with investments and thinking through, you know, we've invested in a lot of consumer companies. Uh, one I invested in earlier last year was Forge. It's a career discovery platform. And they just had such low CAC. They had really high word of mouth because students or candidates that were looking for jobs were telling each other about this platform. Hey, this is a place where you can actually try before you buy with a job. And so you should go ahead and and take a look at it. So we also, on the founder side, as I was talking about, we also look for what I call founder market fit or founder product fit, which is where we say there's nobody else that could have started this company. It has to be this person. And their life story just makes so much sense that that becomes really self-evident. No, that's helpful. That's really helpful. Do you speak about the founder side as well? Yeah, I just touched on the founder side in terms of what I'm looking for on the founder side is that idea of founder market fit or founder product fit. And it's the same idea you would think of for you know product market fit is when do you know that they really have, have found it? And with the founders, we ask the same question of, okay, is this person going to convince everybody that they're the one that should be leading this company? Got it. No, that's really helpful. I'd say on the you know low CAC side, something that comes to mind is the word community. And it seems like a lot of consumer companies are trying to build community. It's almost, I feel like I've heard it just so many times. It just feels like um, I've almost like, like lost the media in terms of what it means. But you know, investing in a community or trying to build a community from the very beginning, like it, you might not see the ROI for a long time because it takes a long time to build a community. I'd love to view, you know, at the Series A, how you think about maybe a company building a community and if they're on the right path or, or not. Because it seems like we're at a stage where you can't just, you know, pump money into Facebook ads and Google ads and that be all right since you don't have the arbitrage opportunities anymore. So I would love to kind of just hear your thoughts on community. I think community is one of those things where we, you know, a phrase I, I kind of say is that users come for the, you know, initial value prop that you're putting out to the world. It can sometimes be, hey, this is a really good product for you, or this is something that will help transform you, but they often stay for the community. And so CAC and retention are both really tied to community. I think about a company like OutSchool, which we invested in this past summer, where it, which is a live online marketplace for K through 12 students to take interest-based classes, like how Taylor Swift 
explains math or how Minecraft explains science. You're also and welcome to follow students, me on Twitter at Mike looking for, for all episodes, okay, I need to learn something and I want to learn something online in an accessible format. But they stayed because they're in classes with groups with other students and they're actually really enjoying that. They're starting to see that some of the most popular classes are repeat classes where students are getting to spend more and more time with each other and, and kind of almost, you know, it's not necessarily a cohort-based marketplace, but they're starting to see some of those effects because that's what people want to stay for. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. I appreciate you tying it into, you know, maybe the model and also the pack in terms of how, how people, that's really helpful. What would you say is one thing that you would change about venture capital? Hmm, this is a really good question. There's a lot of things I would change about venture capital. If I had to pick one, I mean, for me, the most glaring one, and I wish I could snap my fingers overnight, but I can't, but is that I would change the makeup of the investors in terms of making it more diverse. There's still very few women investors and still very few investors of color because we have seen the data that shows that if there's more diverse investors, that will trickles down to more diverse founders being funded. You know, women investors are twice as likely to fund women founders. And there's even a stat about male investors who have daughters are more likely to invest in female founders. And so I think that, you know, that multiplier effect is something that if that part of the industry is changed, the entire startup ecosystem and landscape would be changed. So it's a long-term process and we're working on things, you know, to change this at, at Lightspeed. One of the programs I run is our scout fund. Um, it's a angel investing program of sorts where we give scouts money to go out and find really interesting deals and invest at the very earliest stages. They're investing $25,000, $50,000 checks into really early companies. And one of the commitments that we've made is we have about 50 scouts in our program right now. One of the commitments we've made is to make that class much more diverse. This year, we took in a class that was 50% female, that was almost entirely underrepresented groups, about 80% or more. And so we are really thinking about how do we put that capital to work into their hands and create that multiplier effect. I love that. I love that. And I appreciate all the ways that you're changing the industry. And that is a fascinating stat, by the way, about male investors with daughters invest more so in women. I haven't heard that one yet. So that's really, really fascinating. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I always say a book that inspired me personally was as a young girl, I read Anne of Green Gables. And I know this is like a children's book, but it, it's a book about optimism. And it's a series where despite lots of hardship, Anne was unflappably optimistic. And I think that in addition to, you know, my parents being entrepreneurs and having that mindset around me, I've always just thought that's such an important personality and character trait. You do want to be able to see the downsides. I wrote a blog post a couple of years ago called Paranoid Optimism, where where, you know, my, my take on it is that I want to be super optimistic about the long-term possibilities, but paranoid about the short-term ways it could go wrong. And so that book really helped me think about just how to be eternally optimistic from a really young age. And then I'd say on the more professional side, you know, this is, is a bit cliche, but I actually was just listening to a podcast again this morning from Tony Shea, the late founder of, of Zappos and his book, you know, in the pursuit of happiness or delivering happiness 
happiness was so transformational in terms of thinking about customer success as one of the really key differentiators and specialties of a company. I mean, a lot of people pre Tony Hsieh would have told you the strongest levers of a company are the product side, engineering, UX design, product managers, or the sales side, mostly sales and marketing. But thinking about how you could really differentiate and draw a moat around the company based on customer success was a revolutionary new idea. And one of the teams I led at General Assembly was our customer success team or our student success team. And that book just had such a large impact on how I thought about designing our support services, designing our programs, and really adopted a mindset of, you know, no student falls behind. We are going to support everyone that goes through this program to the most we can. I love that. I mean, both books sound really, really fascinating. I completely agree about being an optimist, but also I really like how you phrased it in terms of the short term, think also be paranoid to make sure that that long term vision pans out. And yeah, I feel like customer successes are kind of like the unsung heroes in a company. And so they really are. <laughs> Sometimes I've seen some teams turn customer success into the a revenue generating team. And I think that can help them have a little bit more visibility, not re- revenue generating, but they put a revenue target on them in terms of also how much, you know, do you help save if a customer is going to churn, but you were able to find a solution and help them stay. And you can think of that as you extended their LTV and you extended their revenue potential. I think that framing it that way can give a lot of power to customer success teams to not just be thought of as, oh, okay, well, you'll handle, you know, the chat. That's a great way to think about it. I totally agree. And think about them as the actual one, as you say, well, what some people say, maybe come for the content, save for the community and customer success are actually the ones that enable that community and, and make sure they actually don't churn. So that's fantastic. What is the best piece of advice that you've received? The best piece of advice I've received, I have my first best and then my second best. So the first best piece of career advice is anytime that you're looking for a job or a role or anything that you want to start new, there's always this barrier. And I felt this when I left Goldman, I was trying to get into the startup world. Nobody wanted to hire me. Everyone was like, you're somebody who works in finance. You don't understand tech, you know, and it was really hard. But I found that if I wanted to get a role, you have to start doing the role first. Don't ask someone for a job, start building something that is related to what they work on and ask them for feedback related to that. That's really the key is that if you can start discussions from a more feedback and project and product-based space, you can often go so much further and you skip to the end of interviewing processes sometimes. You know, when you say, hey, for example, with venture capital, I did this to a lot of companies. Here's the companies I want to invest in. I'm interested in ed tech, VR, and, you know, multicultural consumer products. What do you think about these companies that I put together investment memos and pitches on? And and what do you think about some of the ones that I decided were not good investments? Do you agree with that? And you just get so much further down the line. So that's, I I was on a call with a 16 year old a couple of days ago, and I told this to her and I still, it's, it's my favorite piece of advice I love to tell to everyone. My second best piece of career advice, and this was something I really struggled with, but is to get over the fear or idea of networking as this icky thing. I think a lot of folks think of it as a chore when they're young of, okay, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to reach out to these people and just, what do I talk about? How do I get to know them? And once I reframed it in my mind as not go network with people, but share interesting ideas with interesting people and discuss them, it became so much easier to do. And now, I mean, I basically do networking for a living. So I guess I really did adopt the mindset, (laughs) but it's a 
piece of advice I think can be so helpful to people like myself that were initially much more introverted and scared of reaching out to people. I was very much in that boat in terms of networking. I very much had a fear. And I kind of say this over to myself sometimes, but like the first rule about networking is to never talk about networking and just try not to like psych yourself out. You're just meeting people. It's casual, you know, so try not to psych yourself out about it because it's always fun to meet new people. So my final question for you, speaking about advice is what's one piece of advice that you have specifically for founders? My best piece of advice for founders is I think that one of the most crucial founder skills is storytelling. It's important for fundraising. It's important for hiring. It's important for sales. It's important for virtually every aspect of your business. And it's important for also just selling the vision to the media, to anybody who wants to believe in it. And you have to really make them them believe in it. So I think the best piece of advice is to become a really good storyteller and figure out what parts of the story resonate constantly practice, constantly repeat it, read books on storytelling, take classes on storytelling. And I think that this is something I'm still trying to improve at a lot. It's it's not a natural skill for everyone. I think some founders are naturally gifted with it, but I've seen a lot of founders grow in their storytelling ability and it makes all the difference for their company. I think that's an excellent piece of advice. And I completely agree. I think storytelling is so critical to also, you know, if what you're building is complicated, be able to explain it in very, very simple ways where anyone can understand it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Mercedes, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. I love discussing community and consumers. So thank you for the amazing questions.